So we continue to take a look at Jesus' teachings and to take a closer look at, at what he is remembered as saying, holding ourselves accountable to its application in our time. We've looked at faith and citizenship. We've looked at judging and judgmentalism. And today we look at love your enemies. Frederick Bucher is a, uh, just a marvelous preacher and writer. He's written a, a number of books. In the one called The Magnificent Defeat, he writes this. Good for us to, to listen to today. The love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice, the love of the poor for the rich, for the black man, for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. Today we look at this type of God's love that we are called to, that we are called to. We in our everyday lives are called to by Jesus. And we nod in agreement to his teaching of love your enemies. We all go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we repeatedly find ourselves in conflicts of emotion towards people, and we go, how, 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 to the yeah, yeah, yeah that we first said. And we don't really have to highlight a, a particular war that got us all caught up in emotional or, or a particular argument even. Or, or maybe we don't really even have to highlight a particular offense that we felt. We know the situation. We can feel it in our bones and our hearts ache over it. And our minds go, really, Jesus? What are we supposed to do? So we seek to bring out behavior into the light of God, to have God's light shine upon us, and for us to see if we might see a way forward.
So we look at Jesus' teachings. It's interesting. It's in Luke and it's in Matthew. Matthew provides a conflict or a context, a context for these teachings. Uh, Matthew writes, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, so Matthew gives us the context that, uh, that Luke doesn't, but the context we all know. We all have heard it somewhere. We've, we have felt it ourselves as a five-year-old, as the seven-year-old has bullied us. We, we, we know the feeling that it seems right that we ought to strike back at the person who has offended us. And that we ought to love the people that love us. Little Dylan has a hard time being disappointed and he, he will sometimes lash out with his hand or his feet or even with his mouth on occasion. And uh, Dee Dee and Pop Pop, as well as... Uh, Mommy and Yaya are working hard to try to teach that we are not going to express our frustration with violence. It starts at a very early age, doesn't it? Just to lash out if you're not getting your way or if you have felt somehow that someone's abused you. Why can't I have ice cream before lunch? <laughs> it's a terrible rule. It's an unjust rule. <laughs> it's an unjust rule. And it's one that we've done away with because really it, it works better having ice cream before lunch. We do get some lunch in. You know what I'm saying. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye, but an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Both Luke and Matthew kind of sum it up in the same way, a little different word, but sum it up in the same way. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Being perfect and merciful are high goals for us, yet they are the goals for us. For when we do not seek these goals, everything comes apart. So in the teaching of Luke, if we look closely at that scripture, and I hope you will, I either pick up the Bible here in the pew, we actually have some here in this Methodist church, or at home, since you're a good Methodist, I know you all have a couple Bibles at home, you can take a good look at it and, and kind of look through what's said there because there are, there are admonitions and then there are motive clauses for those admonitions. Love your enemies. Why? Well, if you love those who hate you, what merit is that to you? After all, even the crumbums love other crumbums. Even the sinners love the sinners. Right? Do favors for those who hate you. Why? Well, if you do good to those who do good to you, you know, what's the big deal? Everybody does that. 
That's, that's no merit to you. That's no big deal. Now, AYSO has changed that. If you just show up on the field, you get a trophy. But you really are supposed to show up on the field and play the game, right? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners. Well, we get the drift of, of why Jesus, or, or how Jesus is motivating us to live into the admonition. So if you have, if you have no aspiration of being better than a crummy person, do as you feel inclined. Beat him up. Curse him. Don't lend to him. Bully him back. Right? If you have no aspiration to be better than the worst of us, go ahead and act like the worst of us and see where it gets you. But if you, if you have an aspiration to be godly, if you, if you have an aspiration to kind of follow, Jesus says, what I've been teaching you, then you need to find some other kind of responses in the hard circumstances of life, in the difficult moments other ways in which to behave or speak that somehow changes up the game, takes it out of the gutter, takes it out of the trenches, out of the war, takes it out of the angered look and postures and tone. The injunction to love your enemies is a memorable aphorism because it cuts against the social grain and constitutes a paradox. Because indeed, those who love their enemies have no enemies. Well done, Jesus. Said another way, all folk are children of God. Some of them realize it, some don't. Some act well upon it, some don't. But all folk are children of God and are deserving of the chance love gives for redemption and sanctification. We might even agree with that, right? That's a good way to frame it. Even the bullies, as Pastor Christie said, because the bullies have something wrong with them. Something's gone wrong. That they think the way to behave is like a bully. They think the way to behave is to exploit, is to demean, is to lie. There's something wrong 
Would you say that that is godly? Would you say this is how Jesus is inviting the person to behave? We'd say no. And we would say something's askew here. Something needs healing. Something needs changing. Our good judgment, our humble good judgment would determine that love is needed to transform sadness and disappointment and hate, self-loathing perhaps. And that the way I can work on that is not to beat the crap out of them, but to love the hell out of them. To love him. It's difficult to give love to people who are difficult, <laughs> is it not? Yet, when we do that, when we let love lead with all we do, even with how we deal with the most cranky and cantankerous and crummy people around us. When we let love lead, we know that we are running with God and we are pushing forward the holy experiment of redeeming the world. We're living out in real time Jesus on the cross. And we have a small little opportunity of trying to make that real. St. Augustine is remembered as saying, imagine the vanity of thinking that your enemy can do more damage than your enmity, E-N-M-I-T-Y. Yates. We have fed the heart on fantasies, the heart's grown brutal from the fair. More substance in our enmities than in our love. And to make it clear, if we haven't missed the point, William Sloan Coffin, the Cold War was devastating to warm hearts. The divine commandment to love your enemy was changed into an imperative to hate all communists. Hatred became a patriotic virtue. As we hate our enemies, we begin to harden inside of ourselves our hearts. Our soul quivers in the chill of our disobedience. F.S. Bruce has written a book, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. I thought that'd be fun to own. It wasn't fun to read. He's got some hard stuff, this Jesus guy. Yet in it, he writes, the best way to destroy an enemy is to turn him into a friend. Paul, 
who in this regard, as in so many others, reproduces the teachings of Jesus, sums it up by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I am a, a student of history, and I've read about a lot of conflicts of human history, of, of revolutions and wars and, and the Great War and then the war to end all walls, you know, all of these wars. And, and, and it really is the saddest time for all of us, yet it is the most compromised and dilemmaed time for all of us because we find reasons to justify why we have to be at odds with one another. And both sides do it. Lincoln had a famous line about he, about how the different sides were praying to the same God to win for the justice of their cause. Yet he said, you know, but that can't be right, can it? God can't be on both sides of this issue. That is a mess. That is a mess. And the politics of geopolitical interactions is a complicated thing layered with very sophisticated thinking of ethics and compromise and the greater good and the lesser evil and all of that but we do not approach even being able to talk in those circles if we haven't figured out how to deal with the neighbor who puts trash in our cans when they overflow her cans. And what we would rather do is just bunk her on the head because she doesn't listen to us. And if we can't figure out how to have our kids play soccer together without yelling at the umpire like it's the end of the world, how are we ever going to figure out how not to be in war with people with different religions and different nationalities and different cultural contexts. And if we figure the only way we're gonna get over the sin of 300 years of, of prejudice buried in, in racism, buried in slavery, that the only way we're going to get over that is to ignore that it existed and that there is no culpability, no lasting effect of that all these decades and centuries later, that the way to get through that is not to be able to talk to one another but just ignore its reality. If we can't even do that in our own country, how can we have any critical moral high ground posture of dealing with the Turks denying the Armenian genocide or dealing with this or dealing with that or dealing with that? We learn to globally love our neighbor by loving our neighbor who is in our country by loving our neighbor who is in our state, by loving our neighbor who is in our community, by loving our neighbor who is in our pews, by loving the neighbor down the street.
And as we teach Dylan not to strike back over no ice cream, we teach ourselves how to act in a loving way for growth and healing and help rather than in a violent way. And that is the foundation of the kingdom of God, loving your neighbor. So I've told you stories. I've told you stories about how the, the Muslim dad got into a relationship. Do you remember this? How he got into a relationship with the murderer of his pizza-delivering son and actually created a redemptive situation through that horror. Um, it, it blew my mind when I came around uh, and discovered it in the newspaper, and I shared it with you, and I think many of your minds were blown that something like that could actually happen. That through the terrible hurt of something as great as that, there could be uh, an act of love and redemption and going beyond the grave. And we had Bishop Grant Hagia here a number of years ago. Uh, his folks were in an internment camp during World War II along with many other Japanese of, of our state, Japanese descent Americans of our state. Uh, we welcomed him with love. He loved us with what he said. We had somehow learned to become friends with our enemies of, of a world war, and we lived it out in a very concrete way. And you know what? None of us thought about that when it happened. I thought about that this morning. <laughs> it dawned on me, you know what? There's an example right here in our church. Only a, a lifetime ago. And with Oppenheimer uh, movie out, we all be, will be reminded of those animosities and what was around them and then of the strive effort made of seeking healing. I was at a church where there was enough uh, uh, older children of World War II veterans that the war wasn't over yet. There was still animosity towards the enemy. So let me tell you a story. See if I can get it done by 11. Jim Wallace tells this story about Bishop Tutu. You remember his name as an Anglican uh, priest in in South Africa. He had, he had been, at this time, he had been arrested a number of times just in the, in the preceding weeks to this story. And this story is about how there was a, a gathering of people under um, his leadership for a, a worship service and a conversation about the state of things. And clearly the, the authorities of the Pretoria regime were trying to intimidate the clergy who were against apartheid. So in St. George's Cathedral, as, as the, the place was full of worshipers, um, uh, soon after the start of it, in came the stormtroopers. And they circled the whole sanctuary. You can imagine them along the back and down the side and in the front with the head of 
of the officers right there in front of Bishop Tutu. And uh, they locked eyes for what must have been a, a very pregnant moment <laughs> of where everybody's breath was caught, wondering what was going to happen. And then Bishop Tutu said, you are powerful, very powerful. But then he reminded them that he served a higher power, greater than their political authority, and said, but I serve a God that will not be mocked. Can you imagine the courage of that? Courage of his conviction? And that what must have been the Spirit's inspiration and strength, Wallace writes, Tutu continued, since you have already lost, I invite you today to come and join the winning side. And Wallace says he, he said this with a smile on his face and enticing warmth. If you've seen interviews with him, you can imagine this bubbly kind of uh, personality with these words under such stressful situations. But he said it with a clarity and with a boldness that took everybody's breath away, Wallace writes. The congregation's response was electric. The crowd was literally transformed by the bishop's challenge to power. From a, a, a cowering fear of the heavenly armed security forces that, that greatly outnumbered the worshipers, Wallace says, because he was there, we literally leaped to our feet, shouted praises of God, and began to dance. And we danced out of the cathedral to meet the awaiting police and military forces of apartheid who had hardly expected a confrontation with dancing worshipers. And not knowing what else to do, they backed up. They backed up, and they further backed up and provided space in that front courtyard in front of the chapel or a cathedral for the people of faith to dance for freedom in the streets of South Africa. What a story. The power of righteousness, of holiness, the power of love can be wielded to help bring forward a new world. An eighth grader said, if I could have three wishes, they would be for world peace. Three times. So love your enemies, friends. Find a way. Find a way. Transform your heart so as to transform their hearts and change the world for the purposes of God. Amen.